In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. In the Anglican uh, world, this is known as Low Sunday. Low Sunday, the Sunday after Easter Day, means to Anglicans that you don't have to come to church at all. As much as I have mixed feelings about the impact of an Anglican worldview on Christians, I appreciate the fact that we haven't penetrated the purity and passion of your souls so far to bring you into this way of being. So let me explain a little further. On Low Sunday, we sometimes try to make subtle changes to the liturgy, and we are given plenty of plenty of choices by the liturgy of the Church of England, which is what we use common worship, which began to be put into the system around 2000. We have a new litany this morning. A litany is any kind of responsive confession. They can be very extensive. They're very ancient. This one is modern and therefore brief. But we've not used it before. And it begins with this beautiful series of petitions. Jesus, risen master, a triumphant Lord, we come to you in sorrow for our sins and confess to you our weakness and belief. Now, what constitutes sin, what constitutes weakness, what constitutes unbelief varies from age to age. And if you read through the history of the church, people will seize on different things at different times as the most urgent things, matters that require to be dealt with. These things are very contemporary and actually rather timeless and extremely pertinent. We have lived by our own strength and not by the power of your resurrection. We have lived by the light of our own eyes as faithless and not believing. We have lived for this world alone and doubted our home in heaven. Now, codicil right there, heaven, a point, penultimate point on our journey, not the ultimate destination, which is this earth uh, restored. We owe that to another great Anglican, Bishop N.T. Wright. But apart from that, they've got it pretty well right. The problem we have is living in this world by this world's rules. And the problem becomes grave when the church begins to run herself by this world's rules as well. Now, the concern of all the readings as well, and implicit in this litany, is with relationship relationship between people, the relationship of a community of knowers who constitute truth and therefore put some uh, rubber on the ground when we begin to talk about seeing and believing and believing in life. Life with a big L in our case, not the little E of existence, or what passes for life for most of us or most of those around us before our life passes before our eyes in those last moments, perhaps. And we realize that we have gotten and spent all our resources on things that we cannot take with us, and we're not so sure they're worth taking with us anyway. But we fought and poured out ourselves during our lives for just those things. It's not a body versus soul problem. It's hard to live any kind of life without a body. The season above all makes that clear. And Jesus, as we see today, keeps his body. He has it still, as far as I know, something to think about. The body is not the problem. 
But the little e of existence, the little e of ego, the e as in the e that always wants to be the big I, the big number one, the unholy trinity of I, myself, and me, around which everything in life revolves and to which all our paths in life seem to devolve, that is the problem in our living. Thomas stumbles here, I am uh, conjecturing, because I notice that in the story we've heard, there's a little bit of an injustice there. The other disciples get to see Jesus appear. They get to see him. They can touch him if they want. But Thomas is somehow expected to hear what they say and take that as the equivalent assurance of the state of things in the world as if he had actually seen for himself. Now, if the community is strong, that should work very well. But what we sense with Thomas's reaction is that there's something a little awry here. He's not wanting to trust in others, and he's maybe beating himself up, agonizing over why he has been left out of this community, why Jesus shows himself to them and not to him. What's the problem here? Is he the next Judas, the next one to be voted off the island or out of the Oval Office? He broods over these things, and we don't know what his problem is. But I'm convinced it's something to do with this. Jesus then blesses him with a return visit. The first visit, as you'll recall, which we've heard, finds Jesus morphing into the sealed space in which the disciples are huddled. In fear, as we're told, but as Lao and Nida unpack, this fear is not just a kind of existential angst. It's a state of severe distress aroused by intense concern for impending pain, danger, or evil. They're not looking out the window and wondering and waiting for a better world. They're waiting for the knock on the door in the middle of the night. But the one they feared most knocking on that door, the one who didn't knock but was just there, was the one they betrayed, the one from whom they ran when he needed them the most, the one for whom none of them stood up or stuck around. They anticipate his arrival rumored with very mixed blessings. And I would almost be inclined to say it's the last thing they want to see right now is the Lord Jesus. Thomas also then missed the absolution with which Jesus received their unvoiced confession. Maybe they don't share that absolution with Thomas. Peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad. This is crucial. The emphasis on then. At that point, they were glad when they saw the Lord. At that point, they begin to unpack the dissolution of their fear, the melting away of their guilt, their anguish pouring out like the ointment from the alabaster jar. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. Guys, chill out. It's all right. I'm here. I love you. All is forgiven. This is not payback time. This is go-free time, forgiven. And then, this is your commission. As you are forgiven now, please don't forget this moment. As you are forgiven now, please go out and allow others to know they can be forgiven too. You might show them some of that forgiveness yourself for a while. That would do you wonderfully well. 
And those that will receive it, those whose hearts will be changed, those who will respond to God's first move, will find themselves entering the community of grace, just as you have. This is the essence of your proclamation. The only thing we offer at our table today, forgiveness of sins, a relational gift. We're not offering you a better spiritual life, a closer walk with the Lord, abundant life of any kind. We're condensing it all, Jesus is, into the forgiveness of sins. Now, how do they respond? This is the question. How do those who believe come to believe? As Callistos Ware writes, without God's prevenient grace, we can do nothing. Unless God makes the first move, takes the initiative, there's nothing at all we can do. However, without our free response, in our own voluntary response, unconditioned response, God will do nothing. Whatever God puts on the table, puts on his agenda, projects on the sky as his desire for a better world, he will do none of it unless we take the second first step and begin to do it. This believing part, however, is a big work. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Huge amount packed into this little phrase because they've all seen right? And he's saying to Thomas, this was your chance maybe to trust your community. But he's saying to all of them, I think, that the nature of proclamation, the disciples' task to take those truth to those who will never, can never see what the disciples saw in that locked room, they're going to have to find out through hearing, yes, but through seeing in a very different way to discern in some other way what it is to be forgiven, to be able to love and go on loving, knowing that there is nothing that cannot, with repentance, be forgiven. How do they do this? They see signs of a changed life in those who are making that proclamation. You need both things. You need to proclaim the risen Jesus, and then you need to show that life is different with Jesus. So we move now from that first proclamation to our task to extend God's offer of grace into a far country. We proclaim, yes, but we must also simply live, and there's nothing simple about it, and live out a changed life. An existence in which the small ego, which our society demands we invest in, is no longer the center of everything, every wound and hurt and imagined slight demanding immediate reparation, hitting back ten times harder than you have been hit. Can we believe in a life like that? That is the question. Believe it and live it. If we can't, none of the rest of this counts for anything. Look at how, then, And this is the beauty of that first reading, which I love so much. It puts the cat among the pigeons, as the French say. Look at how these disciples lived when, freed from the closed space of that upper room, they could descend into the marketplace again and live a newly shared life from a new economic vision, living distinctly, differing enough from those surrounding them to attract some attention. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony... Critical, 
to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. That's where we Christians like to end it, right there, especially we evangelicals. Unfortunately, the text goes on as the text will. There was not a needy person among them. There was not one person in need among the Christians. For as many as were owners of anything, lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. I'll paraphrase this. From each according to his ability, to each according to his needs. Pretty good paraphrase. Full marks to whoever wrote that, of course. (laughs) It's Karl Marx in the critique of the GOTA program of 1875. We won't dwell there. We don't want to put the cat too long among the deer pigeons. Let me try this on you. It's come a little earlier. Very specially is this vice of private ownership to be cut off by the roots, and let not anyone presume to have anything as his own, not anything whatsoever, neither book, nor writing tablet, nor pen, no, nothing at all, since indeed it is not allowed them to keep either body or will in their own power. We are not our own, we were bought at a price, but to look to receive everything necessary everything necessary, all we need for life from their Father. And let all things be common to all. As it is written, neither did any one of them say or presume that anything was his own. End quote. If you have recognized it, you know it is the rule. The regula, chapter 33, written by St. Benedict before his death in the year 550. 34, by the way, goes on with even more ferocity about this issue. Far from being an isolated incident, I should say, there are still Benedictines around, one which apparently didn't catch on. The disciples' experiment in communal living in Acts 4 provides the blueprint for Christian economics oikonomos, the rule by which the household daily living is regulated at least for 15 centuries of life among the religious, the thousands upon thousands who made the monastic vocation the most dynamic expression of Christian community. And may I say, economically, those monasteries, the first international corporation, did very well indeed. (laughs) French at the Revolution had to tear down the monastery of Cluny, and it took them years. Such a symbol was it for them of the power of this communal ideal. That's another pursuit. Our question is, can we live this way? Well, we keep trying, and I can justify the fact that the Bible does not say to us that if someone else has something that we want, We can just go and take it. It doesn't work that way. That move to commonality has to come not just from uh, an impulse, if you like, of your own to get. It has to come not even from a very big and graciously minded government. It has to come from a big heart first. We have to be moved to give and give until we see the needs of others being met. I'm not there yet. I'll be frank. We could live incredibly more simply than we do 
in the city of Wheaton. There's nothing stopping me from moving my family into one of those apartments on Roosevelt Road and living with the refugees that we serve. If I really believed, as I am called to believe, I would do that, and we would do it graciously. We haven't. You be the judge of that. But this is what the text says, despite my wretched incapacity to live it. We are not our own. We were bought at a price. Nothing is ours. All is God's. The need to accumulate stuff not even for its own sake, but to cement our position into society is the example of what we call sarks, flesh living for something corruptible and passing and trying to pass it off as something eternal, speaking to our very core identity. Our core identity is Jesus. Could we live like this? We could. We get closer every day in this community. But not until the fear that the exigencies of our existence will not be met, that we will somehow have to separate our wants from our needs and will come up wanting and more to the point that our worldly identity could not last for long, shorn of all the accoutrements that we believe necessary to assure our authentic being in the world in which we have been placed. Much of Protestantism has brought us to this wretched place, This idea that by your works you will be known, that your works and your faith show themselves in your prosperity. The whole work ethic, which was taken on by the sociologists of the late 19th century, haunts us still. Not that we're not supposed to work. We're not supposed to care about what the neighbors think about how well we are doing. That's the road to hell, if ever there was one. If salvation in Christ, the gospel message, Christ is risen, consists solely in being saved as well from this world, pulled out of it, so that we can be warehoused until something better comes along as our reward, which is what we proclaim as we go about accumulating whatever we can get of what we can grab, then this life, when it's over and this mortal sphere is quit, its hope is empty as well. Because we will find when we cross that gulf that all of this stuff is gone. And if we're hoping for a heaven in which maybe we'll be given a whole range of things that we could never do in this world, maybe learn to play the violin, even though we never picked one up, or hit that perfect round of golf, or do all the things we imagine that heaven will be like, the new creation draws us not to take today and project it into tomorrow, but to take tomorrow and bring it into today. That our relationship between the already and the not yet is one in which the not yet is pounding at the door, trying to get into our life, not just as a safe place for granny, bless her soul, and may may we all get hope from that, but as a way to make this world a safe place for the rest of us right now and for our children as well. If we're called to live tomorrow's life today, if the not yet is meeting us very much in the already, and our proclamation is not beware the end is coming, but rather be aware the beginning is here already, we don't wait for tomorrow. Tomorrow starts today, which means tomorrow's life starts now, regardless what the world might think 
living differently than the world in more ways than we can imagine. Kingdom life, living the life that we see only by faith in the lives of others so others can see and seeing come to faith and come to live that life themselves and so on. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, not just in our words, in our lives, so that you too may have fellowship with us and that a wider and wider circle encompassing this whole creation may find that our joy has become theirs, and in their joy we are complete. Amen.